Gospel of Luke and Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. You're looking at verses 46 through the end of the chapter. We talk about the disciples of the kingdom. Disciples of the kingdom. And we talk about the kingdom. That's a word that brings to mind all sorts of, I think, probably mental images, maybe of a throne or banners or castle walls, a crown, you know, those kind of things. We have images, and uh, uh, that's not something that is exclusive to us. But Jesus promised in uh, chapter 9, verse 27, uh, that some of his disciples would not taste death until they had seen the coming kingdom. And I'm certain this brought all kinds of sorts of speculation uh, to the forefront. And of course, uh, some of them were able to go on the Mount of Transfiguration and see uh, Jesus and uh, Moses and Elijah and hear the voice from heaven. Uh, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And uh, then there was the wondrous experience uh, and, and that was... Uh, Peter, James, and John literally uh, seeing heavenly glory. And so uh, we talked last time about coming down off the mountain. We have a mountaintop experience, and then what, what happens when we come down off that mountain? What happens next? And so if this is a preview of things to come, then what would the fullness of the kingdom entail? So it's at this point that Jesus begins to focus uh, his effort on teaching the disciples about the kingdom. Uh, in doing that, he, a great many of their misconceptions are uh, overturned. And as we read along with them here, perhaps some of our own misconceptions will be dropped by the wayside as well. So first of all, talk about kingdom greatness in verses uh, 46 uh, through 48. Verse 46 we read, then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be, the, be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought in their heart, took a child, set him by him, and said unto them, whosoever shall receive this child in the name, in my name, receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me, receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you, all the same shall be great." Some of us will remember a number of years back, a fellow by the name of Muhammad Ali, uh, better known or previously known as Cassius Clay, um, before he converted to Islam. But he would raise his clenched fist above his head and he would claim, I am the greatest. He also said, I float like a butterfly and I sting like a bee. The hands can't hit what the eyes can't see. <laughs> he, had quite, he was quite the poet. But you know, he really thought he was the greatest. And uh, it was the measure, it's a measure of the way the world views greatness. How does the world view greatness? Well, they think about strength, about power, about uh, position, about influence. Those are the ways in which we normally measure greatness. At least the world does. And the disciples of Jesus were not immune to such ideas. 
Uh, this came to a head one day when they began to speculate who might be the best or the greatest disciple. James and John might have thought they uh, were better because they had been with Jesus longer than, say, Thomas or Matthew. Or perhaps Bartholomew looked at Peter and thought, well, at least I'm not known as the apostle who, with a foot-shaped mouth. Remember, Peter always was sticking his foot in his mouth. But uh, so the argument kind of resulted there, and the text seems to indicate that they were reluctant to bring Jesus into the argument. They knew enough to know they shouldn't be arguing about this subject. And I don't know if you ever experienced something like this as a, uh, when you were a child. You know, uh, I did. Uh, I think uh, there were times my younger sister and I would start to argue. I know you can't believe that, but we did. But we knew enough not to argue in front of our parents <laughs> because we knew that uh, they would put a stop to that. And uh, usually they would say she was right anyway. But uh, So what, what's the root of the problem here? What's the root of their argument? Well, I believe it's jealousy and self-ambition. Jealousy is a poison to a church. It can split a church faster than anything. And the disciples were ready to split off and start their own group or their own, maybe their own denomination. Uh, they probably didn't know what denominations were back then, but, uh, but Jesus called them together. And their argument and their petty jealousy was no secret to him, of course. Even if they didn't argue in front of him, he knew what they were doing. He knows what you and I are doing all the, all the time, too. So first you notice here a substituted reception. In verses 47 and 48, the disciples had been kind of playing this game of one-upmanship. Uh, they were taking shots at each other in order to kind of elevate themselves, seeking status, protecting their prestige, coveting praise, uh, grasping for glory. So what's Jesus do? He responds by giving them an object lesson with a child. There's nothing showing about the kid that lives down the street. He's just a kid. He's snot-nosed. He's knobby-kneed. He's unsophisticated. He's unimpressive. No one ever rolled out the red carpet for the kid down the street. You don't leave your business card with a kid. You don't bring out your resume and say, hey, look, kid, what a, look what all the things I've done. All my, <laughs> you know, why? Because, you know, trying to impress a kid is, is, is not going to work very to any advantage. It might work for you, you know, if you want to show your boss some things, you know. Hey, boss, look at my resume. Look at all the things I've done. But it doesn't work for boys. But it's like Jesus saying, you treat people such as I, as though they were me. That's what you need to do. You need to treat people as though they were me, because they are me, of whom Jesus is speaking. He's speaking of how you treat, say, an unimportant person. The poor, the downtrodden, the underdog, the child, or even the unborn. If Jesus came to our church today, how would he be received? 
Well, most likely we'd be ready to roll out the red carpet, bend over backwards to serve him. But he says, this is how you should treat everyone. Even the most lowly and most despised, for that's how you are treating me. So a substituted reception. And then an inverse superiority. In verse 48, he says, For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. Now the key uh, of the, to the kingdom greatness is in direct inverse proportion to the world's model of greatness. Jesus demonstrated this in Luke chapter 6 when he said, Blessed are ye, uh, blessed be ye uh, poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you and when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Christianity was never called to model the world. I think that's the problem that many Christians have today. They're trying to model the world. They're trying to be like the world. They're thinking if we're like the world, maybe they'll want to hear what we're saying. But we're never called to do that. We have two separate and opposing styles of greatness. The world looks at grace, great, greatness as the enjoyment of power and wealth and pleasure. But greatness in the kingdom is identified as servanthood. Serving others. For he that is least among you, the same shall be great. Secondly, notice kingdom co-workers. Verse 49 and 50, And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him because he followed not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he, is, he that is not against us is for us. Now this section is really related to the previous verses and Jesus had been speaking of how you receive those who are despised and rejected and that brings to mind one who recently had been rejected by the disciples during their short-term mission trip they thought oh yeah we remember that uh this guy they were out preaching and healing and casting out demons when they came across someone else who was casting out demons and the problem was he was not one of the twelve. And when the apostles invited him to join them and try out to beat the thirteenth apostle, he refused. Uh, they had a problem with this. Here was a man, unchosen man, doing the work of the ministry. Uh, they just couldn't allow this. Uh, it would not do. And so they ordered him to cease and desist. Jesus corrects their misplaced zeal. Jesus said unto them, Forbid him not, for... He that is not against us is for us. Now that's obviously for our edification. What's the lesson from this that we can learn? Well, what is implied is that this individual was otherwise in harmony with Jesus in his doctrine and his practice. The disciples, however, were upset because this fellow was not in their association. And so they wanted nothing to do with him. Jesus implying that the man was otherwise in complete harmony and with his purposes, put his blessing upon his work. 
One pursuing the same truth, the convictions and goals in the work of the gospel indeed is an ally, not an adversary. Now, some of you would say, well, we should, or some would say, maybe you wouldn't say this, I hope you wouldn't say this, we should, that we should work with any church, any organization, any denomination, as long as they're preaching the gospel. Is that wise? At this point, we must be careful. Just because they claim to be Christian or doing the work of God does not mean we should cooperate with them in various endeavors. They may even preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but there are many other key doctrines and practices that would be unbiblical and put us into a compromising situation in regard to ministry. I don't believe Jesus was encouraging an ecumenical effort in the work of the Lord here. Thirdly, we have a kingdom goal, verse 51. It came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, up until this point, we've seen the primary location of ministry uh, of Jesus taking place in the area of Galilee. But now this is a, a, a turning point. He sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And so for the next 10 chapters, we'll see him moving closer and closer to Jerusalem. He comes to the city of the Samaritans in verse 52. Uh, he passes from village to village on his way to Jerusalem. We'll see that in chapter 13. Uh, he will be passing between Samaria and Galilee. We'll see that in chapter 17. He'll approach Jericho and he passed through Jericho in verses 18 and or chapters 18 and 19. And then he was near Jerusalem in chapter 19. And he approaches Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And he comes down the descent of the Mount of Olives and he enters the temple. So here his, his uh, progress is continually moving closer to Jerusalem. Now, why is he going to Jerusalem? Well, he's going there in order to die. He's going there because he knows that it is there he will be arrested and crucified. He's going there to become a sacrifice for sins. It's to that end that he has set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now that, I believe, is filled with significance. Throughout the Old Testament, when one, one spoke about the presence of the Lord, one spoke literally about being before his face. When uh, Adam and the, uh, Eve first sinned in the garden, immediately resulted in their sin, that was sought, they sought to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord, tells us in Genesis 3.8. And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So the presence of the Lord uh, is something that there was concern about being uh, moving away from his face. But also the presence of the Lord brings blessing to people. Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 and 26, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Sin removes us from before the face of God. And it's for this reason that Jesus set his own face to go to Jerusalem that he might, we might be restored to the presence of God. 
Fourthly, we see a kingdom spirit. Verse 51 through 56. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and he set messengers before his face. And they went and entered into the village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of the spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come, come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now the distance from Galilee to Jerusalem was about 70 miles. Uh, probably we would say as the crow flies. But Jesus and his disciples were not crows, right? We know that. They would have to walk. Anybody want to walk to Eau Claire? It's a little more than 70 miles, but that's about what the distance would be. I don't, I'm not in for that. I'm not signing up for that. Jesus and his disciples were going to walk this entire distance. Now, there are two routes from Galilee to Jerusalem. The first route would be a direct path through Samaria. The more popular route would be to take a detour around Samaria by following the course of the Jordan River to Jericho and then making the ascent up to J Jerusalem. As we know, there was no love lost between the Jews and the Samaritans. They had parted ways many years earlier. The Samaritans looked down upon the Jews as faithless half-breeds. And 200 years earlier, the Jews had fought against the pagan king Antiochus Epiphanes when he attempted to set up a statue of Zeus in their temple. But the Samaritans had allowed a similar statue to be erected in their temple on Mount Gerizim. And after the Maccabean revolt, the Jews had to had destroyed the Samaritan temple. So in the days following the death of Herod the Great, the Samaritans had crept into the Jewish temple in Jerusalem at, at, at night and defiled it. And it was in this setting that Je Jesus and the disciples approached one of the villages of Samaria. Their reception was not a favorable one. Jesus was headed toward the city of their enemy, and if in that case they wanted to have no part with him. So what do you do when you encounter a hostility? James and John had a solution. They came to Jesus with a plan. It was called Operation Fallout. They came to Jesus with their plan. They said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? What do you suppose the Lord's response was. He tells them that they're speaking out of ignorance. They don't realize the implications of what they're saying. They're speaking with the wrong spirit. They're speaking with a spirit of vengeance and of retribution. And being a disciple of Jesus means being filled with the spirit of a servant and of a savior. Verse 56, it says, For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. So they had a plan, but it wasn't a very good plan. It wasn't a 
plan that Jesus would approve of because they had the wrong spirit. Fifthly, a kingdom call. Now during the next few verses here, we see three people of varying levels of commitment. Each has a limited desire to follow Jesus. Each wants to become a disciple. But the real question is whether they're willing to count the cost of discipleship. The first one is a hasty disciple. The hasty disciple we find in verse 57. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto them, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Here we have the hasty disciple. The first man was ready to follow Jesus anywhere. At least he thought he was. The reply of Jesus seems to indicate that he had not counted the cost of that decision. He was ready to follow Jesus anywhere, but was he ready to follow Jesus if it meant they had no place to go? We call this the hasty disciple. And then in verse 59 and 60, we find the hesitating disciple. And he said unto another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. So Jesus is calling the second man to follow, but the man attempts to evade the cross with an excuse. He has a more pressing priority. There are family matter, matters to which he must attend. Now, at first reading, we thought we might think, you know, we could sympathize with this man. This poor man has just lost his father, and uh, he wants to attend the funeral and pay the, his last respect. Certainly, Jesus would be sympathetic to this. Now, some commentators have pointed out that there is no mention of a recent death of family. This man is really saying, well, just let me go home and attend to my family and wait Await my father's eventual death, and then I will come into my inheritance, and then I'll be ready to follow you then. Now, we really don't have that said here. We, we don't have, we're kind of speculating at that point. And that kind of reading is not specifically mentioned here. But if we understand the words of Jesus, we must read what they do say, not what they do not say. The point of this passage is that there is an urgency that uh, there be no uh, delay. Jesus is calling this man to follow and he's calling him to follow now. He doesn't want any excuses, doesn't want anything. You know, even if it has to do with family, he doesn't want excuses uh, to be made. Brings us to the undeciding disciple in verse 61. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So the man is ready to embrace Christ, but he has a problem, again, with divided loyalties. He will continue to look back, regretting what might have been. He's kind of the counterpart of Lot's wife who longed for the pleasures of the previous life. 
Now, as we look at these three disciples, notice the hasty disciple was too quick. He didn't count the cost. He didn't realize what it would take to be a disciple. The hesitating disciple was too slow. Uh, He didn't put Jesus first. He was putting his family first. The undeciding disciple was too easy. He wanted to follow as long as it was under his own terms. Question is, which are we? Have we counted the cost? Are we ready to give everything that we have to Jesus? Are you ready to be his disciple? Until you are, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. I did come across a testimony of one preacher who said, he said this, I was 17 years old and fresh out of high school when I gave my life completely and unreservedly to Jesus Christ. My prayer to him at that time was, Lord, whatever I have and whatever I am is yours. And I think that's a good thing to say as a young person. (coughs) But many times it's easy to say when we're young, and we don't have a penny to our name. We're poor as, as church mice. But as you get older, you begin to accumulate stuff, don't you? It isn't long before all that stuff begins to accumulate you or own you. I would be lying if I did not admit the feeling of the pull of materialism. The older I've gotten, the greater I've has been my um, ambition Uh, to get rid of stuff. Well, most of it anyway. Come on. Those things that served to weigh us down. In fact, I've kind of learned to travel lightly. Now, my wife, she's another story. She takes everything, including the kitchen sink, because she never knows what she's going to want to wear, right? Or she might need something. So you got to take a bunch. No, seriously, listen. I think we need to understand the words of what Jesus is saying here. Back in chapter 9, verse 24, For whosoever will save his life will lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is man advantage if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be a castaway? Sometimes we can get so attached to the things of this world that we're not willing to follow the Lord because we might have to give up something. I think there's a great deal at stake in this passage. There are teachings of life and death, the potential for great gain and great loss. The question is, what are we holding on to? Choose life or choose Christ? Let's pray.